<laughs> what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Uh, we're getting into all the wild card action here. Yeah, we are. You ready to Fact. go? It's true. All right. We only have six games to preview. Mm. And you think that's going to lead us getting Absolutely, we're going to do this under two hours. This show done and you know. We got this. Two and a half hours. But I've already gotten us, I've already derailed us with an idea. You've already derailed us with an idea and I want to derail it with something else. All right, you start. I want to derail it. We, if you listen to yesterday's podcast, our kind of autopsies, <clears throat> on the various head coaching demises, uh, we were talking about Matt Nagy and how every time he opened his mouth, it got worse. And that Matt Rule is starting to push his way into that territory. Every time Matt Rule says something, it's like, why? That that was bad. So you sent me this tweet. This is your fault, in fact. You sent me this tweet this morning uh, from an account called Four, The Four Man Rush on Twitter. Matt Rule confirms on WFNZ that Rashawn Slater was not ideal tackle size, quote-unquote, and they weren't comfortable, quote-unquote, taking a guard that high. Also mentions that he has a mobile quarterback in L.A. So essentially, when asked, why didn't you draft Rashawn Slater, your offensive line is garbage, he replied, we thought he was a guard. Why? I mean, both parts of the answer are bad. Uh, yeah, everything. Everything is bad. So I don't understand. Like, this... This is part of the thing, right? Head coaching is 17 different jobs at the same time, one of which is PR communicator, like spokesperson, right? You can't be that bad. You can't. You can't see that. Okay, let's – it's not that hard, right? It, this is a very easy thing. You have to know this question at some point is going to come up. I'm going to ask you to answer it. Why didn't – Steve, as head coach and decision maker in Carolina, why did you not draft Rayshon Slater, a Pro Bowl slash All-Pro caliber left tackle – at the top of the draft, when you have a terrible offensive line. I mean, great, great season by Rashawn Slater. Clearly showed that he's a tackle. I mean, he's might not even have a tackle body, but he's a tackle. He had a great year. But we had a higher grade on J.C. Horn. You know, J.C. Horn, uh, we're happy with J.C. Horn. Yeah, he got hurt, but he's got a bright future here in Carolina. And uh, J.C. Horn's our guy. We just loved him at eight and uh, liked him more than Slater. Had a higher grade on him. Yeah, it's really that simple, right? You don't even need to mention Slater. You just go, why didn't you draft Rashawn Slater? Absolutely love J.C. Horn. Couldn't pass up on a talent that that high. That guy's going to be the cornerstone of our defense for the next 10 years. You know, highest grade of anybody. Like, it's easy. Everybody does every single year. And instead, you're like, not only do you make it worse by acknowledging the premise of the question, you're like, yes, our offensive line is terrible. We do desperately need offensive linemen. But we thought he was a guard. Well, he clearly isn't a guard. He's just played like an all-pro left tackle. What are you saying? Stop. Stop I, it. I would give, so as we head into draft season season, <laughs> I would say I, w- I would give more of a pass to 
eight players based off of whatever it is, right? So like, I don't, I, I don't think it's that bad to say ah he doesn't fit our parameters for tackle, right? And, and to eliminate players, I think it's okay to eliminate players and not go for say what you would consider an outlier because there's a lot of players to choose from. Um, now admitting it and saying that he's a guard when he just played well tackle is an issue, but I don't, I care less about that part of it. I, I, I care more about when he said he's got a mobile quarterback. I mean that to me, that's, that's misunderstanding. I mean, it's NFL head coach kind of misunderstanding, just evaluating offensive line. Like you're not evaluating Rashawn Slater because Justin Herbert is mobile, which by the way, like doesn't, it just doesn't matter. How are you evaluating Rashawn Slater? Well, he, of course he was good. He has Justin Herbert back there running around. I mean, all of it's terrible. My my point is you can't do this on a weekly basis, right? You you, you can't – this stuff matters. And the reason it matters is because once reporters start to understand that this is how the dynamic works, oh, I can ask him literally whatever I want and he's going to say something stupid and I can just put it down in that's how I get clicks. It's going to snowball. And the reason it matters is because – it, like an NFL coach, GM, they probably don't care about what the media says. Now they do, but they shouldn't. Owners actually care because owners hear that stuff and it's embarrassing, right? And that's the thing. If you show up to your fancy ass billionaires meeting, you know, the owners meeting every year, you don't want to be the team coming in off a two win record where you just have to fire everybody again and the media around your team is a joke while you know the other guys over there their fancy playoff teams and wins and all this kind of stuff and all the news about their team is good you don't want to be that guy right you you don't want to be the embarrassed billionaire you're not used to that you're successful everything you touch yeah. turns to gold and this is the one thing that turns to crap right and the way that gets worse is when uh, your head coach goes out there and answers every question in a ridiculous way that makes everybody look bad. And then the stories just keep perpetuating. When the giant, when John Mara had his press conference, the, somebody straight up asked him, like, is this the most embarrassed you've ever been about your franchise? Right? Which A, is a pretty ballsy question. But B, he was like, yes, it is. This is a train wreck right now. I thought it had sunk as low as it could get, and then it kept getting lower. And that's why I had to fire everybody. Like, you cannot answer questions in a way that is going to cause this to happen. And it really isn't that hard to avoid doing that. I think you really, you really nail. You got into the head of the, uh, of the billionaire owners. Hmm. Well, did. as a, you know, I can empathize. That's <laughs> with the billionaire owners. That's great. Uh, Jim Irsay came out with a really strong statement. Like, he was embarrassed. He had to put a tweet out there. He was very upset. He's, they're going to work even harder to, uh, to get back on track. They're going all in on big name players. Remember when he tweeted, but when they traded for uh, Trent Richardson, he was like, blockbuster, we traded for Trent Richardson. He was very excited. Mm. So I'm expecting uh, a lot of uh, meant to, fantasy football additions you watched, for the Colts. Have you watched like a single minute of that in-season all or uh, the not. hard knocks for the Should Colts? Should that be a part of our job? Probably. I, I must watch, though, the last episode, <laughs> the one where they get knocked out of the playoffs by the Jags. I haven't, but that feels like it would be worth watching just to see how that went down. Yeah, I'll check it out. I like this. So I posed, I posed this question, Sam. And uh, we'll preview all the six games in one second here. At some point. But I was thinking of this the other day, right? What if every NFL team that's in the playoffs gets to draft one player from a non-playoff team? Hmm. So it's in reverse order. You get the seven seeds first and the six seeds and all the way down to the Titans <laughs> and Packers at the bottom. So the Steelers are on the clock. I think this one's pretty obvious. 
Uh, as soon as I tweeted this out, a lot of people answered with the right answer. But imagine the Steelers taking Justin Herbert. Yes. For the playoff Immediately. run. Can we get this idea, NFL? You've got the difficulty of the football is really difficult to just like integrate someone into a new system and all that stuff. But I would still take that chance. Justin Herbert with one week in the system versus Big Ben with 20. I mean, I tweeted something like that, like five minutes after they the Chargers lost and were booted from the playoffs. Like, can we arrange some kind of loan system where he goes to Pittsburgh and we get to see that instead? Oh, so we were, we were both on the same page. I said, so Steelers would take Justin Herbert. What if the Eagles, the other seven seed, took Lamar Jackson if he's healthy? Then you have Lamar and Jalen Hurts to prepare for. And then the 49ers would be interesting. A debate between A.J. Terrell because they could use corner help or Miles Garrett because I just want to see Miles Garrett play right next to Nick Bosa. Mm. Anyway, this would be uh, – do, do, do we want to go through this any further? No, any other? we don't have time. Somebody we actually just, have a hard out today of two hours. <laughs> we do have a hard <laughs> out Because of the here. trivia. Yes, we do. Um, somebody said the Raiders could pick up uh, Khalil Mack. For the wow. playoff run. Yes. Uh, just uh, imagine the stories here. We got to make this happen. Where's Where's the commission? Where's Goodell? Let's push this. Uh, the other one through. we liked was that the Bengals could pick up uh, Panay Sewell and have Sewell and Chase. Yes, that's right. The Bengals have Panay Sewell and we get to see what it would be like if they had both guys. That's fantastic. All right. So let's get into all the matchups. Let's uh, we'll go in order through super Wild Card weekend. So there's two games on Saturday, three on Sunday, and then a Monday night football game because why not stretch this thing out? and make some more money, NFL. Uh, Las Vegas Raiders coming to Cincinnati this Saturday. It's the first game, 4.30. The Bengals are favored by five, and the city's buzzing, Sam. The city is buzzing. It is different here. The Bengals made the playoffs a bunch under Marvin Lewis with Andy Dalton as the quarterback, but I don't think Bengals fans really believe they're going to win a whole bunch of games with Andy Dalton at quarterback. They're believing with Joe Burrow that good things can happen here in Cincinnati, so... Uh, Bengals favored by five here at home. Yeah, the, there is a belief about this team now that I don't think ever really existed with Andy Dalton for good reason, right? Andy Dalton was one of those quarterbacks who was good for a while. Um, that was a 2015. He was really good where he had that supporting cast of um, really good receivers, pretty good offensive line, like the peak supporting system for him. And he had his best season. But you knew there was a level, like a ceiling to how good he could be. Whereas Burrow... There isn't one really yet. I mean, he is, he only missed out being the number one graded quarterback in the NFL this season because he sat down in week 18 and Tom Brady played a game and jumped him. Um, but the second half run, and particularly whenever they gave him the ball, right? Whenever they just, whenever they actually put the game in Joe Burrow's hands and said, go nuts instead of let's ride Joe Mixon on first down every time, he got better. And the Burrow to Jamar Chase to T. Higgins to Tyler Boyd. Joe Mixon as well. If the offensive line can just like hold its head above water, that offense is potentially just devastating in a way that it, it never was with Dalton and the, the rest of those guys. The uh, last, the last time the Bengals won a playoff game, January sixth, nineteen ninety one. So you've seen like those superlatives, like no one has ever texted about yeah. a Bengals playoff win because text messaging was invented in 1992. I went back. I was actually watching a little. Um, they lost this game, but they played the Raiders in the 1991 playoffs lose. So this was, you know, they still hadn't won. A, their last win was before this. That was Bo Jackson's last game. So mm -hmm. the last time they, the Bengals won a playoff game, Bo Jackson still had healthy hips and everything. So it was they, in that game that he wrecked his hip. It was Bo Jackson's last game was a playoff game. I believe it was his last game or his last season, his last run was a playoff game against the Bengals. 
uh, was in that year that they played the Bengals. Yeah. I was watching that. That was the game that he wrecked his hip. Yeah. And the Bengals had still, well, they didn't lose. I mean, they, they didn't win. They, they, their last win was the year before that, actually. Um, so, yeah, there's some excitement over here in the city. Are the Raiders getting overlooked here? Because I don't want to say they stumbled into the playoffs, but, you know, they win this game Sunday night against the Chargers. I think most people coming out of that game are talking about the Chargers. They're talking about Justin Herbert being unbelievable and Brandon Staley being an idiot. I mean, that's the talk of this game. And, oh, by the way, it's the Raiders who won the game and they're going to the playoffs. I do wonder how much that intense Sunday night game, though, will wear on them coming back with this first game on Saturday. Does that extra day matter? All that stuff. Um, Matchup-wise, Max Crosby. I mean, if you guys tuned in to the PFF Award Show last night live on YouTube, we talked about Max Crosby quite a bit. Breakout player candidate, defensive player of the year candidate, over 100 pressures. Can he be one of those difference makers that is getting to Joe Burrow here? Potentially. I mean, that, that I think, is the Raiders' um, key to winning this game is that pass rush going up against Cincy's offensive line, which was never good but has been forced into the bench a bit and is depleted and is worse than it was when it wasn't good. You know, like that's the thing. This is kind of the Raiders are, I think are being overlooked and they have been for a while, but they've, they've been able to win with their backs up against the wall and having Darren Waller back makes an impact. It didn't, you know, he didn't have a huge amount of production obviously against the chargers, but he is a difference maker in that offense. Um, And they have been able to, overcome the odds and win these games where they weren't really supposed to. The Raiders are supposed to be dead and buried at this point, and they weren't. They managed to come back. And so that game obviously was really close against the Chargers, went to overtime, you know, went down to the final seconds. But the the Raiders were the team landing the punch every time, right? Like the, the Chargers were sort of just about able to answer every time. And then it took an improbable and, and crazy sequence of Justin Herbert completing fourth and long every time it came up to just hang in there and survive that game. So you can kind of look at it in one way and say, like the Raiders should have won that game more comfortably than they did. But the diff, like Joe Burrow is a better quarterback than Derek Carr right now. The Bengals receiving core is dramatically better than the Raiders receiving core, even with a healthy Darren Waller. Um, The real difference, the real differentiator in the Raiders' favor is that they have this devastating pass rush and both offensive lines are not particularly good. But one of them has a much harder job to hold up than the other one. What a ridiculous season for the Raiders. Um, even outside of the stories and the craziness that happened, just the flow of the year. They start 5-2, and two, then lose to the Giants, crushed by the Chiefs, crushed by the Bengals. Kind of late. I mean, it was a little bit closer than the 32-13 to 13 score in this Bengals game that was in Vegas. So it looks like the Raiders are pretty much done. They beat the Cowboys on Thanksgiving in overtime. And then it looks like they're done again. They lose to the football team. Crushed by the Chiefs again. Okay, the Raiders are done. And since that time, beat the Browns by two, Broncos by four, uh, Colts by three, and then the Sunday night game where they win by three again against the Chargers. So the Raiders, if nothing else, battle-tested, resilient, that's the one thing going for them. This is this is one of those things beyond because look, I, I don't think the on paper or on your computer or on premium stats 2.0, all a part of your PFF elite package. I don't think there's a lot pointing in the Raiders' direction here. So I'm going to go beyond the uh, the numbers. If you're, this is one of those resiliency factor, <laughs> battle tested, all of these intangible type of things that the Raiders have gone through this year. 
that's kind of like their hope in this, I think. As far as on the field goes, I continue to point to Derek Carr throwing the ball down the field, right? There was a point in the middle of the uh, the season where I think he got a little bit more conservative. Derek Carr is a capable downfield passer, and they need to find a way to create some explosive plays here because I expect the Bengals to score a lot of points. Yeah, I mean, that pass rush, though, is when you look at Max Crosby finished the season with 101 total pressures. Yannick Ngakwe had 62. Um, Those two alone... 163 pressures is a crazy total for a pass rush duo. Like the Aaron Donald, I think, is second in the NFL in total pressures with 87. So essentially, they have you know two of the top three pass rushers. If you even it out like that, if you split it and just 50 50, you're talking 80 uh, 80 odd pressures each. That you know it's two and three essentially. That's a crazy volume of pressure going up against an offensive line that isn't in great shape. Um, I think Jonah Williams can hold his own against Ngakwe, but that does free up Max Crosby again against uh, players that aren't capable necessarily of blocking in, Max Crosby. In this particular game, though, too, they need uh, they need to actually tackle Burrow. Like If they're going to get pressure, I think it's more than just pressure because he has been making electric plays under pressure, breaking out of sacks. Uh, it's, it's one of those sometimes when you're facing a mobile quarterback, when you're facing Russ or you're facing Lamar. Remember the Steelers a couple of weeks ago when they faced Lamar? It looked like they focused all week. Like, uh, if you get a hand on Lamar Jackson, do not let go. He will slip out of tackles. Just stay under control and make sure you finish the play. I, however you emphasize that, the Raiders need to emphasize that with Burrow because he has been breaking free from sacks and the whole thing. So if Crosby wins and gets upfield and kind of gets in his face and Burrow just steps up and avoids the pressure, like, that's not enough. I don't think the way Burrow's playing right now and the way, you know, Jamar Chase is playing, the way some of those playmakers are playing as far as getting open down the field. So um, find a way to finish those plays because Burrow is trying to make some hero plays. He's still taking more sacks than you would like when he is under pressure. Those are potential difference makers for this Raiders defense. Yeah, and Burrow's play under pressure generally is is a big thing in this game because we know pass or we know play under pressure generally is a little bit volatile, but his Average depth of target when he's under pressure is through the roof. It's like 12 yards. Um, he's he's got a massive big time throw rate under pressure. He's averaging you know a ton of yards uh, per attempt under pressure, but he does take those sacks. There's there's very much a boom or bust nature of what could happen if you do get Joe Burrow under pressure, and they probably will get him under pressure a reasonable amount. I think he's definitely you know he said uh, when they were when they made that big play against the Chiefs, the third and 27, just heaved it up at, at Jamar Chase. He basically said himself afterwards, right? It's like that meme, F it, Jamar's down there somewhere, fire <laughs> it out there, right? Yeah. That's kind of how he plays when he's under pressure. It's like, uh-oh, play's breaking down, find Chase and just put the ball somewhere near it, right? And generally that's been working pretty well, but that is a high-risk strategy that in a single playoff game can easily come back to bite you, you know, one or two times a game. And that's the difference. Yeah, that is the the connection that Burrow and Jamar Chase have had. And again, we mentioned this on the award show last night when Jamar Chase won our Offensive Rookie of the Year. He is winning down the field, obviously, but also winning after the catch. You have to you have to attack him. We'll see what the Raiders do uh, defensively. I think they started to get a little bit softer in their coverage and trying to prevent big plays against Herbert and the Raiders in uh, the Chargers. We'll see if they kind of play that game and let make Burrow play that patient game. Now, like our team's going to start treating the Cincinnati Bengals offense kind of how they t- treat the Chiefs and make them take on the, uh, the all the underneath stuff to avoid those big plays that Jamar Chase has been so good 
at creating here as a rookie. Um, anything else about this game that stands out? It's supposed to be cold. Uh, Derek Carr, a couple of years ago, took a uh, when Jack Del Rio was his former coach, was analyzing for ESPN. He's like, oh, Derek's not good in the cold. Mm. Uh, Derek did not take too kindly to that to that statement. But it's going to be freezing here in uh, Cincinnati, and Derek Carr does not have a good history from a grading standpoint in cold weather. Yeah, it's a low sample size, but it is true. <laughs> so far, Derek Carr has been bad when it's been very cold, and it will be, in theory, very cold for this playoff game. Um, and yes, the cars, the cars generally didn't take it well. The cars, cars generally don't take criticism well. It's no. not their thing. I have been attacked by the cars. Been been attacked. I believe I have as well. Nice. Yeah. You know the way like some people put sort of inspirational quotes on the wall or, you know, like a kind of mood wall of things, you know. Yeah. Good. It's usually positivity, right? Things to inspire you. I'm pretty sure that the cars just have like a basement full of like all the negative crap that's been said about them. Just print it out negative tweets. Yeah, yeah. Just plastered on the wall. Bulletin board material is their entire like wall. Just everything mean that's ever been said about so Matt, Matt Nagy has wallpaper made up of his like old call sheets and yes. stuff like that. The cars have just mean every tweets. bad tweet and press clipping and everything negative that's ever been said about them. Somehow like screenshot, you know, Rex Ryan going on a rant about him. Just plaster that up. <laughs> I also saw, um, was it Kevin Clark put out the tweet that Derek Carr had uh, back in November that uh, when the Raiders make the Super Bowl, Derek. David I'm, Carr had. David Carr had a tweet. That when the Raiders make the Super Bowl, he'll make the case that Derek is not only the most valuable player in the league, but the most valuable player in the history of ever, basically. <laughs> the most valuable player in history. And I, I, the sentiment was about like everything that the Raiders have gone through, and Derek has helped uh, keep it together. But, uh, you know, David doesn't always come at it with the uh, most unbiased take here. No. Uh, so five points here. Do the Bengals cover this? Do the Raiders? Do the Raiders have a chance to pull this upset here? I mean, they have a chance. Look, I, I didn't think they would win the game last week, True. and they were the better team basically throughout that game. And as I said, only Justin Herbert prevented that from being done much earlier than it was. Um, so yeah, they have a chance. I again don't think that they are the better side. I do think that pass rush has has the chance to even it all out. Right? I think that generally speaking, the Bengals are better across the board almost, but. The pass rush is the big equalizer. If Max Crosby goes off, and he has gone off against guys that are uh, inferior to him, like they can, they can get Burrow under pressure, cause some problems, and that's it. PFF, uh, the Bengals' offensive line has improved from a pass-blocking standpoint. Last year, they ranked 27th in PFF pass-blocking grade. This year, 25th. So the Bengals did move up two spots in pass-blocking. So, again, that entire offseason debate about Burrow and – and uh, Panay Sewell and protecting him and all that stuff. The the down-to-down pass blocking of the Bengals has not really improved a whole lot. The Bengals have been able to overcover, overcome it because of their playmakers and Burrow's playmaking. We'll see if that comes back to bite this year, though, because it still is uh, – this week, it still is a weakness. Who are you taking to uh, – who's going to cover the five here? Uh, let's go with the Raiders covering the five. But since so this is going to be another good, intense game. I think so. For the Raiders. How about the Raiders going up? The, the people that debate, by the way, uh, PFF.com, Doug Kide. I was shocked by this, actually. Yes. PFF.com, Doug Kide interviewed several NFL executives, uh, people from PFF like us, with this pretty common question. Now, Justin Herbert or Joe Burrow? We had a, did a whole daily on this a few weeks back. Everybody took Joe Burrow. 
All the executives. All the executives. So coaches and uh, players, I think. Was it players he spoke to as well? The, the, the non-executive people were much more evenly split. Um, though still favored Burrow, I think. But all the executives he spoke to chose Joe Burrow over Justin Herbert. And this was done after the Sunday night football game. So, like, people had just seen Justin Herbert almost single-handedly drag his team back to a win that they had no business getting with that sequence of six for six on fourth down for a hundred plus yards and like looked played incredibly well people had just seen that and went still taking burrow I'm, I'm amazed that they went that way yeah me too i mean i think the perception coming out of that sunday night game was justin herbert's dragging uh the arrogant idiot brandon staley to uh to wins because brandon staley called a timeout and went for fourth downs and all this stuff and it's herbert that is the key and he's you know getting pulled pulled back by this uh by this coach uh, but yeah i was surprised by that burrow a lot of the answers it factor and winner and this and that and look i'm i'm guilty of that too i mean there's something to watching somebody play i mean the on-field product's great for burrow too number two graded quarterback as you said but i do just trust burrow in in crunch time or in in these games and what we saw down the stretch was the bengals handed the keys to burrow and said beat the ravens beat the chiefs go do it and he did it put a ton of points on the board so I think uh, our, our buddy, Dan Dano, Dan Orlovsky, had a tweet that was sort of, um, it pulled out all the games that Burrow had had that were must-win games, gotta-have-it games, have-to-have-it games is how he phrased it. And like tagged, non-Jets games. Yeah, he added somebody in the tweet, which I might be reading this wrong, but it suggests to me that that was the guy that first came up with these numbers rather than Dano, but... I don't know that. He may, may be in and he's just tagging that guy. You're anyway. giving Dan O credit and maybe someone else deserves it. Correct. I don't know. So either Dan Orlovsky or somebody called Paul Hembo came up with this. Um, but 2019 LSU against Alabama, Georgia in the SEC title game, Oklahoma in the semifinal um, of the college football playoffs, and Clemson in the national title game. And then this year, the Ravens and the Chiefs in those two games at the end of the season where you lose either one of them, you're not in the postseason, go home. In those games... Burrow is 6-0, won them all, uh, 2,669 passing yards, which is 444 per game, uh, 27 touchdowns, and no interceptions. So in the games in Burrow's career where essentially he's had to win or go home, like no, no more season, he's been perfect. I mean, it's Seems pretty legit. <laughs> and we have another one this weekend. We'll see if the legend continues. I'll take the Bengals to cover. You're taking the Raiders to keep it close here. Um, should be an exciting game. And like I said, Cincinnati's buzzing here. And I'm excited, you know, good for the Raiders uh, after all this season. Just an impressive finish for that team. We'll see if they can uh, keep their season alive. Do you want a chance, though? Do you want a chance to win the ultimate game day feast? I'm sure you do. Whether it's football success or financial savvy, winning starts with asking us questions. And would you like to know what it's like behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? How about a need to know for your financial future? Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Every submission, so every time you do this, you submit to win a chance to win the ultimate feast to celebrate football's favorite Sunday. We'll cover your catering up to $2,500, coordinate your order from a restaurant near you, and have it delivered on February 13th, 2022. What would you do with $2,500 of food? It's a lot of Chipotle. Yeah, Chipotle is where you go. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't thought about it. CC Jeff Ruby's. Oh, I would get that seafood monstrous platter 
from Ruby's and share it with nobody. But mm-hmm. don't forget to check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. So here's what you do. Submit your questions at westernsouthern.com slash feast. One more time. It's westernsouthern.com slash feast. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, Western and Southern, with them, you can rest assured on game day. And now back to the podcast, Sam. All right. So this, and or interview. And or interview. But we're not in an interview, so no. I, I, can, I can add my own. Okay. I don't need to read everything. All right. All right. Here, so I'm a professional. Very I'm just professional. trying to help you out. Read the read. Uh, New England Patriots at the Buffalo Bills. The Bills are favored by four. It's going to be four degrees. Maybe. Low. High. <laughs> it's going to be between 4 and 11. Yes. That's not a feels like. That's just the raw temperature. Here for it. Yeah. Love it. I mean, I'm here for it in particular because I don't have to be there. Like that, a, a Bills-Patriots game on December the 27th was one of the, was the coldest I've ever been in my life. Yeah. Um, I've, I've never been to a game that's like that obnoxiously cold. That was unbelievably cold. I think they've renovated the stadium since then. Yeah. But at that time, they had like aluminum. Aluminum. Aluminium, aluminium of bleachers, right? Yeah. Where it was just a bar of aluminium that ran the length of the thing, right? And you know the way if you sit on something metal for a while, it warms up because eventually the heat in your body permeates to the thing you're sitting on. It it you know heats, right? Yes. But at some point, if there's large enough uh, thermic mass, it doesn't. It just sucks the heat out of you endlessly, and you're you and the other people there cannot generate enough heat to raise the temperature of this giant block of metal, right? So all that happens is you sit on this thing, which is like minus a million, and you slowly freeze to death. And when you go in there, they're selling these like seat cushions, but they're selling them for like $30 or something. Like, I'm not paying $30 for like a tiny cushion. The hell with that. After about a half an hour, you're like, give me five of them. I'll I'll, (laughs) I'll deal with it. Um, And it was windy as well. There was like stuff airborne. It was the game where somebody almost missed an extra point short. And that was before they moved it back. Yeah, yeah. It was like when it was a 15-yard kick. 21-yarder. Yeah. That was hellish. And this week, it might be the same. (laughs) You don't have the wind factor, though. Right. Just the difference between this game and the Monday night Buffalo game, that had 50-mile-an-hour wind gusts. This one is just cold. Really cold. I didn't realize Stephon Diggs, uh, somebody asked him if Josh Allen needs to take a little something off his passes in the cold. And Stephon Diggs agreed. That was coming out of, uh, I mean, I came to that conclusion on my own. It looked like Josh Allen was throwing lasers, and uh, he had Diggs wide open a couple weeks ago in a really cold game. Was it a Panthers maybe? Uh, and Diggs dropped it, and I'm like, I, I feel bad giving Diggs a drop when I look at this. I, I just don't. The, the quarterback needs to do a better job there. I find that interesting. Mina Kimes coming up with the take that Josh Allen, that, that they need to build a dome for him in Buffalo to uh, maximize his ability. Couldn't disagree more. I mean, if, if you're trying to maximize his stats, yes, it would be. But I mean, this there's a reason why Buffalo's number one. I think Allen becomes more potent as a weapon in hideous weather conditions. Yeah, and because you don't have a guy that can do what he can do. And here's why: it's not just because he can cut the wind with velocity and all that stuff. It's also because he adds value as a runner. Yes. You can pivot your game to run through Josh Allen in the design run game. In any is- way, like regardless of the weather, that's the thing, right? There isn't a set of weather conditions you can put out there where Josh Allen isn't a more dangerous uh, quarterback than the, than the opponent. Everything, no matter what, whether it's rain, wind, crappy, cold, whatever it is, he becomes the better quarterback in terms of skill set because you don't have a guy that can do what he does. Yeah, so that's where I think... You're going to probably talk a little bit about, hey, Buffalo's run defense against New England's uh, rush offense and all that stuff. 
I think Buffalo's answer has to be is leaning on Josh Allen once again, like they did in New England a couple weeks ago. But him as a runner, both in the design game and if you just let him run around and scramble. That means New England's got to have to be, as they usually are, pretty disciplined in their pass rush lanes and all that fun stuff. But I think it's another one of those games where it's like Mac Jones within the system. Can he make enough throws within the Pat system versus Josh Allen just trying to take over this game? And I think it comes down to that and Josh Allen's volatility. Does he try to, does he try a, an ill-advised lateral again? Does he try mm. to do too much here with the play in the playoff game? That's the concern, right? They, the bills have built this, this offense on the shoulders of Josh Allen, justifiably so, right? They're paying him a ton of money. The idea being, okay, now you got to be that guy. Now you have to be the thing that, that this entire offense runs through again, regardless of weather conditions, regardless of what style of offense we play, Whatever we do, it's going to pivot, but it's going to pivot on you. You are the fulcrum. Um, the problem with that is that you need to, you can't, you can't implode anymore, right? Now, everything they do has set up so that you're the guy. And so far this season, he's done a great job. And generally last year as well, except the postseason. Um, but like when you've got to have it, when you've got to have that fourth down, it's Josh Allen carrying the ball one-on-one beating a linebacker and getting and picking up that first down and making sure that the drive stays alive, right? He's been the guy that's taken responsibility and made those plays when he needs to. But things have changed in the postseason so far in his career. Now, he's still young. He's, you know, he's only been there a few to- a couple of times. But, like, that's a risk. If, if you're going to build this entire thing on his shoulders and he's the guy that's going to take responsibility every single time – he can't screw it up. Allen regressed a little bit this year. That was true. It happened. Mm-hmm. Still really good. Yeah. Yeah. And he's still that guy that, you know, he threw for 36 touchdowns. Like they just, they could put points on the board. The Bills are a weird team where they crushed some bad teams and lost a lot of close games. And they also, good teams. even a lot of the games where they crushed teams, it was a slog for a while. And then they pulled away late. You know what I mean? Like, there were, like right. the Jets. The Jets got that close for like three and a bit quarters. And then all of a sudden... You look up and the Buffalo covered a 15-point spread. You're like, whoa, where, how did that happen? The, the part of Allen's game, though, that even his biggest supporters, I think, missed on was the impact he would have as a runner. Yeah. And this year, I mean, dude, he ran for 763 yards. He's the highest-graded quarterback. In, in a 92, 92.2 rushing grade. Which is insane. 52 first downs, right? So you're talking you know, three or four per game here. He has more carries, right, than their running backs. Like, they're running back. They're highest. Yeah, I mean, they had the game against, I think, Tampa Bay where he had three carries in the first half. Their running backs had one, whatever it was. I mean, that's pretty pretty common. So, again, I think there's, there's a lot of pressure on Josh Allen, not because, like, he's got to win and it's his legacy and all that stuff. It's because the Bills put it on him. They put the pressure on him. They put the onus on Josh Allen to go and win games. So, another 760 on the ground this year Devin Singletary has 870 rushing yards Josh Allen has 763 uh Singletary has seven touchdowns Allen has six uh obviously Allen has a much higher yards per attempt 6.3 versus 4.6 like he and also the other thing is it isn't just what you see with a lot of quarterbacks where you know they're rushing threats they get them on the edge in those read option looks and then they just they get a ton of yards before anybody gets near them right Allen like when he when he runs, he's beating people in the open field and both with moves and running the hell over them. He's averaging 3.6 yards per carry after contact. 
That's like a high-end running back number. Again, it's higher than Singletary. He's averaging 3.1. He's broken 35 tackles on his carries. He's only carried the ball like 71 times. He's basically breaking a tackle every other time he touches the ball. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to oversimplify this game, but I think the winner will be determined by what happens with the most volatile Josh Allen plays. He had four or five big-time throws in the last game against the Patriots. Uh, a couple big runs in there as well. I mean, we might be talking about six to ten plays of Josh Allen going either way uh, that determine this game. On the other side, what does New England do offensively? They uh, The Bills do a really nice job in the pass game. They did a nice job slowing down New England's passing attack in the last matchup, and they didn't have to slow the passing attack in the first matchup in Buffalo. Um, it might not be as windy, but it's another one of those games where it's Mac Jones throwing the ball in difficult conditions. It's difficult to throw. It's difficult to catch. Um, so how much will the Patriots actually put on Mac Jones plate here? Will they try to throw the ball down the field? It's a, still a very tough Buffalo pass defense. Yeah, and Mac, so there's a lot of threads to this game. Obviously, the Josh Allen one we just talked about, um, Mac Jones needs to play well. Like the Patriots are the, – the, the range of outcomes for New England this season has generally been how well is Mac Jones going to play. If Mac Jones plays pretty well, and even, even forget the idea that they haven't necessarily asked as much of him as certain other quarterbacks. If he just plays well, the Patriots are a very hard team to beat. Um, when he doesn't play well, it's a lot more open. And, you know, the Bills have been able to beat them. Um, they have lost some games where Mac Jones hasn't played that well, and he hasn't played well down the stretch. We've got one game where Mac Jones showed up and looked good. The other four or five in the last five, six weeks have been rough. Um, so they desperately need Mac Jones to have a game that looks more like he did for the first half of the season than he did, he did down the stretch. If they're going to win, like if I think generally almost like unless Josh Allen implodes, if Mac Jones doesn't play well, the Patriots are just not winning this game unless they run the ball. Like unless it looks like the, the first game where they only ask him to pass three times. Uh, Jalen Mills might not be able to go for New England. He's done uh, a decent job at corner for them opposite JC Jackson this year. So there are some question marks there as far as, you know, Mills doesn't have the best history in his career, but it's another one of those. Ah, the Patriots kind of got more out of him than we've seen in the past. Um, the other key here, New England's pass rush. I mean, the, the times when teams have given uh, Josh Allen and the Bills with some problems, they have gotten some pressure up front, whether it's schemed up blitz, uh, blitzes or uh, just winning, uh, particularly on the interior. Uh, Matthew Judon, after a really good start to his season and a whole bunch of sacks and a whole bunch of buzz, you know, it hasn't really been great down the stretch here. So I think I think the Pats need to figure something out defensively up front and figure out that balance. Do you want to send five or six? Do you want to do you want to play that Lamar strategy of sending extra extra bodies so that you can actually and, and with gap discipline actually keep Allen in the pocket, or do you want to sit back in zone, make him play that patient game that we've seen teams do throughout the year? I think the way the Patriots mix this up defensively will be will be part of that cat and mouse game that will be fun to watch. So. And then obviously the other element is can Buffalo's defense stop that New England ground game, right? Like that's That's been the thing that determines. I, I still think there's a very real element to this Buffalo defense that's very good but has struggled against teams that are really good at establishing a physical run game. Tampa Bay, Indianapolis, the, the Patriots in that first ridiculous weather game, 
that's going to be New England's game plan, right? Let's establish this ground game. Let's try and get our running backs going. Let's not ask Mac Jones to do too much. Let's absolutely crush them up front. Um, and the Buffalo Bills need to show they can stop that. Like, they didn't really in that first game. I know that the stats were a little bit skewed by one big run. They did get some stops late in the game, but generally the Patriots won that part of it. The second game was way better. Like, now you're one and one so this next one is the decider. It's the, the rubber match. You got to show that you can beat them again. Buffalo has improved their overall run defense grade this year, but they're, they do have some disastrous games in there. And it's against the Colts, that game they got crushed. Uh, bad one against the Falcons. Bad grade, 42 grade run defense grade against the Patriots in the Monday night game in Buffalo, against the Titans, and then against the Patriots again. Um, even though they won 33-21, Still did not do a great job up front. Um, I, so the, my, I'll be watching to see how much the Patriots put on Mac Jones' plate. Do they try? Is it just run, run, pass, run, run, pass over and over and over again? Not to the, not three passes, but are they trying to keep Mac Jones' attempts at twenty? Are they trying to keep it at twenty-five, or are they gonna you know take what the defense gives them? Because I think Buffalo will sell out a little bit more against the run here in this particular game. I mean, they're gonna have to. I think like you, if if you're the Bills. You have to trust that your pass defense, which is still probably the number one in the NFL, even without Tredavious White, you have to trust that, that Mac Jones isn't probably going to beat you over the top, or at least, you know, in the world in the world of Bill Belichick, right? Like, take away what they want to do. If you get beaten by the second thing, if you get beaten by plan B, okay, it's probably still the best way of doing it. If you're Buffalo, it's the highest risk in that if there is a big play in there, obviously those are those are massive, but... You have to trust that stopping what they want to do, running the ball, is a better option than making sure Mac Jones doesn't beat you. Like, just trust that your defense can hold up against Mac Jones over the top and stop the thing that they want to try and establish. Uh, just to finish the one point, Matthew Judon in the last matchup, one pressure on 38 pass rushes. Patriots have to do a better job up front if they're going to slow Josh Allen. I don't think they're going to do it. I think the, uh, I think the Bills, the AFC champions, they're going to win at home. Uh, I don't know if they cover the four. I think that it will be a good, another good close game. I mean, the Pats, Patriots won by four. Four, four is a lot, isn't that much sometimes, right? The Patriots won by four in that really close Monday night football game. Um, so I'll actually, I'll take Buffalo to cover, to win and cover the four. Where are you going? Because you've been, you've been pretty solid with the, the Bills don't match up well. Yeah, I, I, I've been on that since the first time they played. Obviously, they they impressed in getting that second game back. It shows that they can do it. I still want to lean New England. I think that there's a chance that they can get that done. Um, so yeah, let's let's stick with that. By the way, in the last matchup, Patriots blitzed 11 out of 49 dropbacks. Allen had a 90.9 grade against no blitz, 90.8 when they did blitz. There was no real mm. difference. But I think that strategic matchup there of how new england tries to handle josh allen is going to be great um so i'll take buffalo you're taking new england yep you said all right you're sticking with new england speaking of sticking with stuff cheers to 2022 and resolutions that you can keep stick with it the entire season the entire year how about having clean ball clean and shiny balls all year round sam how about that <laughs> our sponsors at manscaped are here to save your balls this year Bless and make you. the ball drop into 2022 the cleanest ever Set your first New Year's resolution with good intentions and join 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our exclusive offer. You go to manscaped.com, use the promo code PFF for 20% off plus free shipping. That's right. 4 million men all doing the same thing. Trust in Manscaped and 
I assume they're all using the PFF promo code. You would hope 20% so. off. Plus that free shipping. It's New Year, New Me with the global leaders in male grooming. This year, take your grooming to the next level with their Performance Package 4.0 in addition to their new Ultra Premium Body Wash. The Body Wash solves three issues, three problems for the perfect addition to your daily grooming routine, but in the shower. Body, body Wash smells great. It's clone, inf- clone infused with aloe vera. And sea salt keeps your skin feeling clean, nice, and moisturized. Those three things, pretty important. To complete the set, Manscaped threw in the shed travel bag and the anti-chafing boxer briefs as free gifts to keep all your goodies stored comfortably. It's well written. Mm. Whether your resolution is to work out more or travel to new places, be sure to travel to manscaped.com for our exclusive offer. Cheers to new balls in 2022. So you get 20% off plus the free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. It's 20% off. Free shipping, manscaped.com. Use the promo code PFF. New year, new pubes in 2022 with Manscaped. You never know how it's just going to roll through it. Yeah. In this, it's, good. Uh, it's great. I want... Um, yes? I don't want this, but if people have tried it and feel, you know... I don't want feedback, but I like to hear that our our listeners are getting value here. Here, yes. Do not want visual evidence. No, no, I never... I'm just saying, I, you want to hear feedback. Just like... Uh, Send a check mark yes. or something. Like, good. Right. Good. Appreciate Let us Manscaped. Know in the vaguest terms possible. Do you appreciate Manscaped? Yes. Appreciate it. Check mark. Just send a check mark to the email. We've done it um, because I think it's a good deal. 20% off. And we're on to the 4.0, the lawnmower. Things legit. We're also on to the Sunday games. Philadelphia at Tampa Bay. Bucks are favored by eight and a half. Uh, sounds like there'll be some rain. And uh, wind, 20 to 30 mile an hour winds here in Tampa Bay. I do think, you know, obviously you've got a pass first team in the box. You have a run first team in the Eagles. Anytime you get that weather game, it should be uh, in the underdog's favor. It kind of brings the game a little bit closer. And especially the way the Eagles play football with their rushing attack, with their offensive line. They might have a chance here to pull the upset in Tampa Bay. Yeah, I think it makes it more interesting, not less, um, the weather in this game because I I do think it probably plays towards Philadelphia's advantage, not just because it kind of neutralizes a little bit of that Tom Brady, Tampa Bay passing attack, but also I think weather, it it makes it a more run-heavy, run-focused game anyway, but I think it also favors the team running rather than the team stopping the run. Does that make sense? Like the loose footing – you know, slippery conditions, not ideal uh, surface type of conditions, I think favors the team with the ball, not the team stopping the ball. Now, the big thing in this game is that you've got Philadelphia, one of the best run-blocking offensive lines in the league this year, going up against Tampa Bay and, you know, 900 pounds of Vita Vea in the middle. Um, that, like, it's a, you know, the irresistible force versus the immovable object. Well, when you make the ground slippery and wet, the immovable object starts to lose traction. Right, whereas the the irresistible force keeps on trucking. So I do think that this is a game where it's a pretty big point spread, but all of a sudden I think the weather actually starts to favor Philadelphia's ability to cover it. Uh, the Bucks will be getting a little bit healthier with uh, Shaq Barrett likely back. I believe JPP potentially Levante David and uh, Leonard Fournette all all coming back and probably playing. Richard Sherman's been put on IR for the second time, so he's done. And so he'll be done for the season. That was that experiment. You know, they tried, um, but the Bucks looked a little bit healthier on the defensive side of the ball. Not as healthy on the offensive side. Still dealing with receiver issues. Um, but I wonder if they have to pivot their game plan too. When you're playing in the rain, 
they've been such a pass-heavy team, Tampa Bay. Yeah, they've had games where they've tried to you know run the ball, and Fournette has been far better this year than he has in any other year of his career. But he's just getting back. We'll see if they, ha- they try to rely on that run game a little bit. But their best bet, if it was a clean weather game, would be just take all the underneath stuff that this Philly defense tends to give you. And even the guys are getting back, like Shaq Barrett. I mean, it feels like, okay, it's playoff time now. You're playing. You know what I mean? You can come out here 80% and give it a go. Yeah, but I don't know that Shaq Barrett is going to look like Shaq Barrett in this game, and like there, Tampa Bay is another one of those teams that did a good job in terms of building in contingency. Right, we take we draft Joe Tryon Shyinka in the first round, and if we lose a guy like JPP or Shaq Barrett, we have a guy who can step in and be that contingency. We don't necessarily need him to play right away. Now he has played a reasonable amount because those guys have both been injured at some point during the season, so. The last few games in particular, uh, Tryon's the three starts, he's played 50 snaps or more in each one of those games and has one pressure in the three games combined. Um, so this guy, when you watch him play, he's clearly got that incredible athleticism. He's got a high motor as well. He's always kind of still trying, but it's not translating to pressure. And it wasn't earlier in the year when he was a rotational guy and you're like, well... You know, maybe they just need to find a way of getting him on the field more because JPP hasn't been playing very well. And and then eventually that kind of opened up and they they suddenly found a, a massive opportunity for him and it hasn't resulted in pressure. So if if they go into the playoffs and Shaq Barrett isn't what he was because he's playing on, you know, 85% or whatever, and Tryon Shayinka is not generating pressure. And even if JPP's back, he hasn't been good this year. All of a sudden, like that, that front's not looking that great. You're ta- and you're talking mostly from a pass rush standpoint, but even from a run defense standpoint, right. the Bucks have not been what their early season reputation was, right? And the last time these two teams played, they did play on Thursday Night Football earlier in the year. That was before the Eagles had pivoted to this real run-happy, uh, run-first attack, right? This was very much still, let's keep dropping back with Jalen Hurts. I don't even think they handed the ball to a running back until very late in the game. And then they started actually running the ball effectively in their comeback attempt. They lose. The Bucs win 28-22 to in their last matchup. But the Bucs got up early and let the Eagles, or the Eagles crawled back into the game and had a chance to win late. Um, that was in Philadelphia, and it was back in week six. But my point in all of this is, yeah, the Bucs run defense has not been as solid as, it, as the perception was or as solid as they even were earlier in the year. So now you're talking about the matchups being, you know, Vita Vea up front, against you know, undersized Jason Kelsey. You know, how do they handle all that? But the Eagles have this incredible run blocking unit. The other guy that we highlighted on our award show, Jordan Mailata, one of the one of only a handful of tackles to be in the top 16 in both run blocking and pass blocking grade this year. So Eagles leaning on their offensive line and their uh, physicality up front and shortening the game. Can they can they put together some of those eight, nine, ten play drives? Not, not even ten plays, but ten minute drives. Really take half of a quarter and all that stuff. I think that's going to be their best bet as far as shortening the game here. I mean, the other interesting thing is what does the Tom Brady passing attack look like in week uh, worse weather conditions and also without you know some important receivers? Like they've obviously lost Chris Godwin, Antonio Brown. The saga happened and, and he's gone. They they they're not where they used to be in terms of all those receiving weapons, and we've already seen this year that like when they've when that receiving depth has been chipped away at, it hasn't been the same offense. Um, obviously, they still have really good receivers, Mike Evans, uh, Rob Gronkowski. There's weapons there, 
but it's going to be a different game because you don't have everything on the table anymore. There's going to be some some ugly weather. You're going to need to get it done, however that manifests itself, and you're you're not as long on options as you used to be. Yeah, so I think against this Eagles defense, the middle of the fields, the underneath stuff should be open. They, uh, the the Bucks, uh, Rob Gronkowski was hurt in the last matchup. I think it's a heavy Gronk and Cameron Brait type of game. Especially the other part about the weather game. The Bucks have been able to pivot to three tight end sets because OJ Howard is still there. He's still a re- I mean, he's yeah, he's a good tight end three. He has <laughs> he's underachieved as a former first rounder, but having Gronk, Cameron Brait, and OJ Howard on the field, uh, Cyril Grayson, the speedster, looks like he won't be able to go. But Scotty Miller has that same kind of speed. Rashad Perryman, it might be more of a you know, let's put three tight ends out there. Let's try to run the ball a little bit and create some big plays with the speed that they have now with Brashad Perryman and with uh, Scotty Miller to go with uh, Mike Evans and Rob Gronkowski. But uh, in a normal weather game, I would say Gronk's getting 10 or 12 catches because against a zone heavy attack, Gronk's going to work the middle of the field, but we'll see how much the weather affects the passing game here. I think the bottom line is the Eagles have to run the ball effectively and then Jalen Hurts needs to make plays. Yeah. He has to play a little bit better even than he has these last few weeks. I'm interested that the... What the market is doing in this game is kind of intriguing because um, I think that bad weather makes this game closer than than it would have been otherwise. Like in a in a perfect weather game, I think Tampa Bay is a better bet than Philadelphia. And then when it when the worse the weather gets, the better it gets for Philly. Um, the market has this line moving. The only way it's moving is the over-under, right? So the weather, essentially, the market has gone, okay, that's going to impact scoring. The the over-under has been steadily moving downwards as the weather kind of gets confirmed as ugly. But it hasn't changed the line. So the market doesn't think that there's any difference, essentially, between the two teams or who's likely to win and by how much, whether or no. Uh, But it does think it's going to impact scoring, which I think is interesting because I disagree. I, I think that the worse the weather gets, the closer Philly is in this game. Yeah, we're looking at 80% chance of rain. And like I said, 20 to 30 mile an hour winds, higher wind gusts. Sometimes the wind is the bigger factor than the actual precipitation when it comes to throwing the football. So um, I I am on board with the Eagles keeping it closer. Eight and a half, I think I'm going to lean Philly to just – they only lost by six the first time around. And I think they're capable. I've also seen multiple people, Chris Sims included, saying, man, look at who Philly has played from a quarterback standpoint down the stretch here. It is – it is not difficult. The most difficult quarterback they faced was Dak, and they put their backups in, and they got smoked. Um, so maybe the Eagles haven't been challenged defensively down the stretch here. And early in the season, they were allowing everybody to complete 75% of their passes. But I think the weather helps a little bit of that. So I'll take the Eagles to, to keep it close here. Yeah, I, th- I agree. I think if I think the weather, the way it is, I, Philly's, I think Philly's going to cover that number. It's big. I think the Bucs win, um, and if they win, they will take on – uh, either, well, they'll most likely take on the Dallas Cowboys who are favored against the 49ers, but this might be the absolute game of the week. We'll talk about it in a second because we're talking playoffs and we're going to talk DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. They're kicking the playoffs off with a huge offer. Counting down to Super Bowl 56, new customers can get 56 to 1 odds. That's right, 56 to 1 odds on any wildcard team to win their game. So all these games we're talking about, you pick a team and you bet just $5 and you win 280 in free bets if your team's victorious. Pretty incredible deal here. If Sportsbook isn't yet available in your state, 
Still have something to play for this wildcard weekend. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Football Contest. And DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. And you get 56 to 1 odds on any NFL team. Bet just $5 and win 280 in free bets if your team wins. It's promo code PFF. This wildcard weekend at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older. New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit. $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem. Call 1-800-GAMBLER. I wish Madden and Summerall were on the call here. Mm. The 4 o'clock hour. There would have been a pretty good chance of it. Like that, those, the 49ers and... Uh... And Cowboys, <laughs> like that was that was their staple. You throw in Green Bay as well, and you covered about eighty percent of the games they ever. That did. was everything in the in the nineties. I might fire up some old Niners Cowboys games uh, between now and Sunday, just for uh, nostalgic purposes, especially with uh, the Madden news recently. But yeah, this was like this is classic, man. Uh, Niners at the Cowboys. It's not Aikman and it's not Steve Young and no Joe Montana or anything, but it's Garoppolo and Dak, and Dallas is favored by three. Now this is the tightest spread of the entire weekend and there are some people who think dallas is the best team in the nfc and i don't think that's a crazy thing to think that dallas is right up there with the bucks and right up there with the packers as the best most well-rounded team but the niners especially since about week seven when they got healthy they're probably the best wildcard team in the entire nfl right now and the most dangerous so this could be the absolute game of the week niners at the cowboys with the cowboys favored by a field goal yeah, every game that involves the 49ers, I think is just fascinating. Um, they, they had, there was a video that was posted where somebody essentially asked, why were they, why were they running so many inside toss plays in the run game? Usually when you toss the ball to a running back, it's getting outside wide. It's a, some variation of, you know, an outside zone trying to get to the perimeter quickly. And they were explaining that it's essentially, it's, it's because that's what happens, right? Usually, it's an outside play. So if you're on the defense and you see a toss, what do you think is coming? The outside run, that's where you're headed, right? So you do the opposite of that. You do something different because that split second, the difference where the the linebackers or everybody flows too far and over, overplays it and all of a sudden there's some space in the middle. Like that split second is the difference between you being able to execute something better than the defense or not. And I think that was a really good embodiment of what the 49ers offense is in a nutshell which is we are unusual by design we do the unusual because everybody else is used to the usual they key on the usual they're good at defending the usual they expect the usual so we deliberately skew in the opposite direction and it's in terms of play calling in terms of designing the scheme you know folding in uh gap concepts to zone concepts in the run game and it's in personnel as well. We get in freak athletes that are unusual. Debo Samuel, George Kittle, Kyle Juszczyk, Brandon Ayuk even is an unconventional uh, skill set, even though he's probably the most conventional of the group. We just get in all these freaks, right? Because they're unusual and you don't have a guy to expect what they do. So when you're trying to defend a Debo Samuel, you're like, oh yeah, don't worry. He's just our number one receiver. And then what the hell is he doing in the backfield, barreling over you know, safeties, in the run game, running it like zone plays. It's not, he's not supposed to do that. So every game the 49ers play in is fascinating because of that, because they do weird things. And that is a big reason they're successful. 
that makes that whole division awesome, right? The NFC West, we thought it'd be one of the best divisions in the entire NFL. They've got three out of the four, uh, three playoff teams out of the four have made it. And that's what makes it awesome, right? We, we've talked about the Rams doing it their own way, you know, going for it. By the way, we'll talk about who they signed this week, uh, speaking of going for it. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the, the Rams have their own distinct style. The Niners have their own distinct style. And the thing we've kept repeating is when you do put Debo Samuel in the backfield, as good as Elijah Mitchell has been as a rookie running back, when you put Debo Samuel in the backfield, you break defenses. So the Niners have the ability to create explosive plays. I think this one comes down to how many passes does Jimmy Garoppolo throw to linebackers and corners, right? How many times is he going to misread the middle of the field, those turnover-worthy plays? How many can he have for them to win? I mean, they've survived with one or two before. If it gets to three, you could be in trouble. But at the same time, Dak has had the same issues, right? Outside of the two games where they put up 50 against the football team on Sunday Night Football and then against the Eagles' backups, Dak has been putting the ball in harm's way a lot down the stretch. And this Niners defense has been much better toward the second half of the year than they were earlier in the year. So, yeah, man, this is this is a great matchup. The Niners offense also going up against Dan Quinn in his defense. It's Shanahan versus Quinn and all the storylines there. It's the Micah Parsons factor. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing with Parsons, too. Do you want him playing traditional linebacker against a scheme where they could kind of make him look bad, right? What the Niners do, as you said, everything is unusual. What they do is make linebackers look bad. And as good as Micah Parsons is, he's still a rookie, right? You can still kind of, you, you, I always say the linebackers are on a string, right? You get them going this way and you misdirection the other way with, with motion, with jets and play action and all that stuff. Or do you, do you put Parsons into like more of a traditional edge rush type of situation here just to like protect him and let him be an impact pass rusher or is parsons like the antidote to that maybe like you know we, point. there's been i mean so many i can't remember who it was somebody made the joke of you know steven ruiz has this uh meme on twitter where it's shanahan it's a picture of a linebacker through a like a rifle scope you know and it, the idea is yeah. shanahan has these linebackers in the crosshairs and just makes those guys look ridiculous remember isaiah simmons rookie year Starts week one, Shanahan put that dude in a blender that basically made the Cardinals bench him for most of the year from that point on. They're like, oh, wow, we cannot have this guy on the field if this is going to happen every week. And Shanahan does that to linebackers. Like he zeroes in on these guys that play the middle of the field and figures out ways of manipulating them and moving them in the wrong place and isolating them against these freak athletes and just embarrassing them. But Parsons has had like the greatest rookie season we've seen in 20 years. He is a unique, unusual freak athlete on defense. Is he the one guy who can screw that up? Like if you go after Parsons, is that the worst thing you could possibly do? All you're doing essentially is putting him front and center um, on the stage and letting him wreck things without having to go find the play. Like that would be my concern. I don't know. Like they haven't played yet. I could imagine that going either way. Maybe Parsons is still a rookie still you know weak enough in those areas that you can target him or maybe that's like the last thing you want to do because you're just setting that guy up to make plays yeah i can't wait to see the third down package too with what they do with parsons so like you have the early down what do you do with him and his is he the antidote or the you know the guy getting targeted or um or what happens on third down right are you able to we've seen the cowboys isolate parsons over guards and you have Demarcus Lawrence, you have Randy Gregory. So you've got these legitimate pass rushers to put pressure on Jimmy Garoppolo. 
Um, I always joke that the uh, Nick Foles career is defined by him, you know, about to take a hit in the chest and he's throwing it and you don't know where the ball's going to go. Like Garoppolo's got elements to that too. He's got that quick release. He tries to do that little sidearm thing when guys are in his face. Last week he tried it with Aaron Donald in his face. It popped up for an interception, but he also made some big throws with that too. The Garoppolo coaster, so to speak, is so much dependent on what happens under pressure because he, he can get rid of the ball. But you just don't know where it's going to go. And, and that's going to be a, one of those factors as well. And you see that in those like turnovers are going to be so important in this game. Dallas is the most turnover happy defense in the NFL. Obviously, uh, Trayvon Diggs with his 11 picks. They have been just wrecking people by creating turnovers. Jimmy Garoppolo is it is a roller coaster. It's boom or bust when it comes to turnover worthy plays. He has so he's played in 15 games this year, right? He has four games with three turnover-worthy plays. Those are dead. You can't win a game. You're not winning if he has three turnover-worthy plays in this game. Just So there's a essentially a one-in-three chance that the game is dead on arrival by Jimmy G pitching the ball to the defense. He has four more games with two turnover-worthy plays. That's putting yourself massively behind the eight ball. It's going to be a hell of a challenge. You've got, you know, it's that's going to be a fight if you're going to win the game and he does it twice. Uh, but he's also got four games where he's had none, like four clean games where he has not put the ball in harm's way. You get one of those, I'd say you have a pretty good chance of winning a game. So it really is like it's a very even split between perfect nightmare and, <laughs> you know, a real challenge in the middle. I mean, do the do the DAC breakdown too. Multiple turnover worthy plays down the stretch here. There's been a bunch. Uh, the other factor but here. He's we, at least offsetting it with like incredibly high high end. He play, makes a lot yes, big time throws. throws. Like too. he does a lot to drag back those meg- negative plays that he himself creates. Jimmy Garoppolo has ten big time throws on the year. He has one game with more than one of them. Now he's also averaging eight point six yards per attempt because Kyle Shanahan is like a tin cup wizard, but he himself personally is not doing a ton to overhaul if he pitches the ball to the defense three times. Um, Dak ends up with the, with the highest passing grade of his career. I don't want to take anything away from it, but it, it, it was very much aided by his last game against the Eagles. 89 passing grade where there was a lot of open throws. But it ended up being the best year of Dak's career, despite the slump that he had in the second half of the year here with multiple turnover-worthy plays in three, four, five out of eight games. So I I honestly do this generic, hey, it's going to come down to turnovers. I think it really will because... What what did you say it was overall? 84.7 passing grade. 84.7. His passing grade is the number one passing grade. uh, He fumbled the ball a ton. So it's 82.7 if you take out that last game. Okay, so it's still his career high, but it's a lot closer to his rookie year and his uh, in his 2020 before he got hurt. 2020 pace wise, I think he would have been his best. Um, so just to sound generic, it'll come down to uh, it'll come down to turnovers here. That's why people come to the show, Steve. Just whatever cookie cutter piece of wisdom you can throw in their direction. Here's why, but here's why the turnover thing matters even more, right? Um, I I got to talk to our the analytics d- uh, dorks and nerds about mm. this more because EPA. I'm not anti-EPA. I like EPA as a number. You're definitely anti-EPA. I'm anti- I am anti-EPA attached to players. I am pro-EPA attached to teams. I think it's very descriptive of teams. And like some of the stuff uh, Kev Cole has done on the website where you do plus and minus based off of players and this and that, like that's fine. It's contextual. Um, I don't know if EPA properly captures the opportunity cost of not having the football well 
like I think it it adds the negative value. Hey, you throw an interception, you have negative EPA, and then you move on. But for these two teams, right, if you take possessions away from this Cowboys offense yourself, right, if you lose possessions, or if you're the Niners and you lose possessions, I think the effect is almost doubled, right? I mean, it's like I, I, you need as many possessions as possible because they're so explosive. They can score at any time, both of these offenses. So that's why I think the turnovers mean even more, particularly in this, in this matchup. So there you go. Okay. So Niners and Cowboys. Cowboys by three. Where are you going here? Um, man. I, this is a close game. I, I this might be my favorite matchup of the weekend. Me too. It's even, even independent of the you know Joe Montana versus the, the '90s Cowboys kind of. Uh, It'd be more like Young versus Aikman. I'm gonna cross over. Right? It was the right kind of. It was. It went. It was Montana like the catch that was the NFC Championship game, San Francisco Dallas, and that was an eighty-one. Yeah, yeah, but like they, there was the Montana Cowboys stretch where they kept meeting in the championship games, and then it became. Steve Young versus became Young the Aikman, and the, yeah. the Cowboys took over the the wins. Right until Dion and uh, Ken Norton, until they went to San Francisco, and then the Niners took over. Yeah, ninety four, ninety four, took it back. Right. Yeah. So anyway, independent off of, of that, that history, I think it's one of the the best matchups of the weekend. Um, I I'm gonna fire up some old games right now. What year? When did they play? Let's look. Nineteen nineties Cowboys. Now I'm gonna watch while we're while we're on the show here. Okay, you do so, that. That so doesn't talented. feel like great podcasting. It'll be great for I'll the just, listeners. I'll live tweet it. Um, I'll live discuss it. Well, oh, so one more data point that Take I your, thought was really interesting: the 49ers lead the league. They lead the league in yards after catch on average, right? Which is okay, yes. fine. That that makes sense for those receivers, those freak athletes, etc. They lead the league by a freaking mile in yards after contact per catch. So they don't just like get yards after the catch because they're springing guys into open space and watching them run. The, the guys that they get into space are busting through tackles and wrecking your defense because they're great run after the catch guys physically. So th- think of Debo Samuel. Think of George Kittle. When those guys get the ball in their hands, they're not just running into open space and getting what's there. They are breaking tackles by defensive backs who can't tackle those guys because they're built – either like a running back in Debo or just like George Kittle. You don't have a guy that takes him down in the open field one-on-one. So I think that's another big part of this is will Dallas's defense be able to tackle those 49ers receivers once they get the ball in their hands? I think it's going to be a matchup essentially between can Dallas force enough turnovers to offset the fact that they're going to give up a lot of plays through falling off tackles or just getting beaten up. Yeah, I don't want to overrate Kyle Shanahan, it's Mike McDaniel to the offense coordinator, like the whole system and all that stuff. Uh, but for Jimmy Garoppolo to be averaging 8.6 yards per attempt with an average depth of target, uh, where is it right now? Where did it go? Right there, 7.8. So one of the lowest average depth of targets in the NFL, one of the highest yards per attempt. And this has been a consistent theme with Shanahan like quarterbacks. I saw somebody pulling comparisons, uh, Guy on Twitter, Tucker Boynton, I believe his name is, done a really nice job creating like a, a QB historic numbers. Takes a lot of QB advanced numbers, and he's got some comps and all that stuff. And this year's Aaron Rodgers season, it, there's a comparison to like 2009 Matt Schaub or whatever. And it's like Kyle Shanahan. This is like Shanahan has a history of Matt Schaub's and Jimmy G's, and then taking Matt Ryan to the to the MVP and elevating his game. It's just incredible. I mean, it's it's and that's why. 
and that's why I'm taking the Niners hmm. to win. To win. And Garoppolo, he's got something like the best record on the – whatever it's worth. Games where Garoppolo started on the road, it's like one of the best winning percentages of all time. Okay. QB wins or not. Um, uh, I hate this too because I love Dallas. Like Dallas could go to the Super Bowl. Yeah. But I also see this world where the Niners go into Lambeau and maybe pull an upset against the Packers too and go to the NFC Championship. So yeah, I hate this. I'm I'm uh, I'm going to lean Dallas, but I could easily see it going the other way. I'm, as taking, well. I'm taking the Niners. A lot of times in wildcard weekend, it's just the favorites, though. It's just like the favorites win. It's what they do. But uh, I'll take the Niners to pull this upset here. <sighs> Pittsburgh Steelers at the Kansas City Chiefs. Chiefs favored by only 12 and a half. You think it should be three scores? A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Pittsburgh, Kansas City. What can the Steelers do to pull the upset here? I don't know. <laughs> That's the thing. That's why I think it should be three scores. I'm not sure what they can do to make this work. Like they're just, I mean, we, this is the weird thing about this weekend is almost every game is like a repeat, right? There there's, is there one game that's not a, ma- a rematch of a game we've already seen so far? Uh, um, yeah. The, um, this one, the Niners Cowboys, right? That's the only one, but we've already seen this game, Pittsburgh against Kansas city. And it did not go well for Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh didn't think they were in the postseason. We were writing big Ben's eulogy. They were like, you know, applauding the guy for the nice like lap around the field at the end, like the the farewell victory lap. It was Big Ben's retirement, and then it was like, oh, we made the postseason. We got to come back, and we're playing the Chiefs. Great. So even this week, he's just been like, yeah, you know, we're expected to get our asses kicked, but like we'll go out there, give it a shot, and you know, I find it very hard to get like excited about this Steelers offense in the playoffs against Kansas City. See, I think I think the point of previous games is very overrated. I, I I don't think you should look at, well, this the Chiefs killed the Steelers the first time, therefore it's going to happen again. I think that as a concept is overrated. And we've talked a lot about there's something to the Niners and Rams, something matchup-wise that the Niners seem to work well with, uh, Bucks and Saints and all that stuff. The Chiefs-Steelers' previous matchup, I don't think matters. What matters is... You don't think it matters that... Like, no, uh, what matters is... It, that game was not out of line with the rest of the Steelers' season, right? They didn't. It wasn't because it was a bad matchup or the Chiefs are just so much better than the Steelers. I mean, they are, but the Steelers just, that's how they play every week. They struggle to put points on the board, and unless they get turnovers, unless T.J. Watt has like multiple strip sacks here or the Steelers catch the passes, Mahomes has four dropped interceptions over the last two weeks. The Steelers have to catch those passes if they have opportunities. There's a lot of what ifs for the Steelers here. My main point is that that game matters, not because of the matchup or anything, but because the Steelers have just been so inefficient on offense that, you know, if this game's 24 to three or 24 to six, would you be all that surprised? Not, not really. I think it matters because that was a, that was an example of just the difference between these two quarterbacks. Like Ben Roethlisberger has been struggling to the finish line of his career in the last, you know, two years, essentially. But particularly this year, it's been pretty hard to watch at times. And the last, late in the season, it was even harder to watch. Like just a million pass attempts for like zero yards. You know, he's averaged, I think, 4.5 yards per attempt in the last four weeks of the season. It's been miserable. And in that game in particular, it was 36 to 10. Um, And you were like, Roethlisberger sort of sitting on the sideline 
watching Mahomes be Mahomes, do all the things that he does, ridiculous sidearm throws, manufacture passes out of nothing, create plays that are broken down, all this stuff that Roethlisberger used to do, right? You know, the, remember, this is a guy who at his peak was doing, I mean, not so much the sidearm stuff, but like creating plays out of nothing, extending busted plays, fighting his way out of contact, moving defenses with his pump fake and creating a massive play that wasn't there beforehand, doing all this stuff. And now he's not capable of doing any of it. And he's watching the guy on the other sideline do it all like it's nothing, just with the knowledge of like, I, this is not, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm in a, we're not playing the same game. This guy is doing what I used to do. And now I'm sitting here trying desperately to just be efficient enough at my two yards per attempt that somehow the drive stays alive and we can cling in this game. And I don't know, like, I don't know what can change to, to reset that balance. Other than, as you said, the Steelers just get lucky as hell with a bunch of turnovers. I mean, I'm not going to change my tune from earlier in the year. They, you chuck it up to Claypool and Deontay Johnson. You have to take chances down the field. It can't be death by 79 slants. It can't be. You can't do that. You know, when, when it's there, fine. But, you know, the Chiefs, Spags, hmm. likes to run his zero blitzes and overload. And, you know, they'll get some hits on Big Ben. You need some pass interferences. You need strip sacks, you need turnovers, you need a lot of this stuff to happen if you're the Steelers. I think if you're the Chiefs, it's not really – I mean, they, they could have played either the Steelers or the Raiders, most likely, right? Um, Who's the other option for them? Could have played New England, technically. But, I mean, they, they either way, the Chiefs were probably going to have a favorable first-round matchup. It looks like a good favorable matchup for them as long as the Chiefs don't make a ton of mistakes – I think they'll be okay. It looks like Tyree Kill's back practicing, obviously, for their entire Super Bowl run. Having healthy Tyree Kill to go with Kelsey is huge. The other part about this Kansas City Chiefs offense, um, Mahomes has played much better in recent weeks after his midseason lull. He wasn't great against Denver, but um, overall he's been better. The emergence of Mecole Hardman and Byron Pringle, they, they, they were forced into it as Tyree Kill got hurt. But I think if those guys continue to play well, and Tyreek is out there, and Kelsey's out there, that's the thing Kansas City was missing for much of the season, was production from options three and four. I think they're getting that a little bit more in recent weeks. The Tyreek Hill thing is interesting because like that started out sounding not you know 100% that he was going to be good to go. Now, obviously, as he said, that he was full participant in yesterday, Wednesday's practice. Um, sounds like he will be good to go. But like they put that guy out there on a hobbled heel last week for basically no good reason jeopardizing this game like if they hadn't got Tyreek Hill for this game that would be a big loss for them um it sounds like he's going to be good to go who knows if it's good to go in terms of you know like that 2004 Moss game like if he if he's good to go the same way he was good to go last week that's not really Tyreek Hill um so I'm just I'm generally kind of interested by how cavalier they appear to have been with this injury and and his potential health going forward in the playoffs because they need him and this is a game what is it a 12 and a half point spread like yeah this is a big spread this is a game where if you were going to err on the side of caution you would do it here because like you, you probably don't need Tyreek Hill against the Steelers but you're probably going to need him against the teams you're going to play face after the Steelers um so I think it's I think it's interesting that they've been I don't want to say messing around with that but they haven't appeared to have been like they risked him. I think for no particularly good reason over the, last week. They got and, the fourth and one though. Yes, they really converted that fourth and one. 
Um, keep an eye on the right tackle position for Kansas City because uh, Lucas Niang's been hurt and he's out. Andrew Wiley uh, stepping in. He had, a, he had a good game against Denver last week, but uh, Wiley's played more guard than tackle to this point. And I think that's your that's your TJ Watt spot. I don't think Kansas City likes to do a whole lot of chipping, you know, keeping their back in to protect and all that stuff. They like to get five receivers out into the pattern. So you might see a lot of Andrew Wiley on an island against TJ Watt. And like I said, Wiley's been he's been fine when playing right tackle this year, but we'll see. Well, I had two pressures, two hurries last time they played. So it wasn't yeah. wasn't a big problem last time. It wasn't last time. Be. Wasn't uh, Watt was uh in and out that game, right? That was one of the games he had the the groin injury, I believe. Yeah. He was battling. Not 100% so healthy. Healthy TJ Watt. Played 38 snaps, 19 rushes, but yes, not healthy. I mean, you can see it in his grade. He wasn't healthy. Right. So healthy TJ Watt, uh, future defensive player of the year here for the NFL, not for PFF, but for the NFL. TJ Watt's going to make some big plays in this one. Uh, but that's the... And needs to. Oh, absolutely. Like He needs to. They, they, need a, they need one of those... Monster turnovers from a TJ Watt, you know, a strip sack kind of play. They need Minka Fitzpatrick to do that thing where he just shows up where the ball is randomly and get a turnover. Like they need something and probably more than one, multiple of those plays to offset the fact that Roethlisberger is going to put up 147 yards and Najee Harris is going to rush 28 times for 87. Like they're going to have zero production on offense. They need to find a way of scoring outside of that. All right. So who are you picking? Uh, Kansas City. Yeah, I'll take Kansas City as well. We need to, by the way, record those numbers. If I managed to nail those stat lines exactly, that would be pretty pretty fun. Yeah. You could do it. You could we've we've made incredible predictions on the show here in uh in previous time. Uh, promo code NFL pod, by the way, 25% off. Any PFF subscription. I saw uh, I saw our friends uh in the booth over there dropped the promo code in the YouTube chat, but it's NFL pod. It's exclusive to you, our viewers and listeners, just on the podcast here, 25% off. Draft guide season coming up soon. Uh, a lot of our free agent content. We have a lot of what we call locked content, right? You get you know articles to read, some exclusive stuff for Edge and Elite subscribers, and we'll give you 25% off. You get the full calendar year, 365 days of access. So it's 25% off using the promo code NFLPOD. All right, let's wrap it up. Monday night Football. There's a Manning cast for this. Yes. Yeah? Thank God. You're not in on uh, Greasy and Lou and Lee. I do not enjoy the main Monday Night Football broadcast. Okay. I do enjoy the Manning cast. Manning cast is always entertaining. Arizona Cardinals at the Los Angeles Rams. Rams favored by four in this matchup. It's another rubber game. This is the third. This is the, the second matchup that we'll see a third time this year. So another divisional matchup. Arizona won the first matchup in L.A. L.A. won the matchup in Arizona. And uh, this is the game, Sam. This is the game that the Rams envisioned when they traded for Matthew Stafford that he has to go out there and win it. Where are you leaning in this one? What are you looking for? Well, the big thing, I think, for this game is can Arizona stop Aaron Donald wrecking their existence the way he did the last time they played? Yeah. Um that was one of that was where Aaron Donald was like at the peak of his dominance in that last game, just taking guards and running them into the backfield. Like, can you even imagine the strength and leverage you need to possess to take a 330-pound guy and run him backwards? Like a guy that's trying to stop you heading in that direction, pick him up, 
and just move at a rate of knots in the direction of the quarterback to the point where like him clattering into Kyler Murray takes him down for a sack. That's what Donald is capable of doing and actually capable of doing at a pretty regular clip. It's lunacy. You're not supposed to be able to do that. Nobody is. And yet he did, like time after time. Uh, did you mention Donald's batted pass getting intercepted? No. In the red zone? I mean, that was, so that's another, like, uh, batted passes, You, it's not on the defensive lineman as far as the results, but it just shows, I mean, if you're batting passes, good things are going to happen. It's either going to be incomplete, and every now and again, it's an interception. Kyler Murray had a red zone interception on Donald's batted pass. So I think that is absolutely a huge factor there. Yeah, uh, that last game, Aaron Donald had 14 pressures. That's a crazy number. I mean, just for perspective. Three sacks. An I mean, interior defensive lineman is probably going to average three, two to four, right? Yeah, that might be the game. most of a, in a single game this season. I mean, Crosby had a 13 game or 13 pressure game. He's had 11 as well. I, 14 in, in a game might be the highest figure this year. And that's why Donald won our Defensive Player of the Year award because a game like that, that's not like a three. Like when somebody says, "Oh, this guy had a three sack game," for some players, like it's legitimately you only made three plays in that game. Yeah, there were sacks. The value of an actual sack is more than a pressure, but getting that result is dependent on sometimes the quarterback holding it or whatever it is. Someone else getting a pressure. Fourteen pressures is an individual dominant performance, and it, it wrecks game plans and it wrecks plays. And sometimes you get lucky and the batted pass becomes an interception too. And you throw that into the mix and it's like, all right, Aaron Donald is the reason that the the Rams won this game. Um, in that game though too, but Kyler Murray had six big time throws and four turnover worthy plays trying to make a comeback there. So I think that's what this game comes down to. So you've got Dallas and San Francisco coming down to the turnovers and all that generic stuff. To me, this comes down to the special throws. How much special is Matthew Stafford going to pull off? How much special is Kyler Murray going to pull off? I think it, it was it was an incredible back and forth match matchup the last time they played on Monday Night Football. I think we see more of that. Two former number one overall picks, and as far as storylines and legacies go, and all that stuff, Stafford getting his shot in the playoffs with a good team, and Murray in year three with Cliff Kingsbury. I mean, there's so much to watch here. So I, I love that Dallas-San Francisco game, but this could be the absolute game of the weekend as well. I mean, Donald put Kyler Murray under pressure about 29% of the snaps, his dropbacks in that game. Donald, on his own. Like, that's a pretty good team. That's not a bad team record in terms of pressuring a quarterback. If you, fact, like, if you factor in everybody else, that massively increases your chances of causing problems. And in that game... When Kyler Murray was under pressure, he had four turnover-worthy plays. When he was kept clean, he had zero. So Donald individually was able to put Kyler Murray under pressure about a third of the time he dropped back. Like, that that's genuinely game-changing. And the Cardinals have this interesting offense because they don't have a great offensive line on paper. They do some creative things in the run game. They operate with pretty wide line splits which in some ways is really useful and sort of manufactures some space that you don't get necessarily when you're just counting the box, when you're just matching up number for number. Um, so he like generates some of this, uh, or they generate some of the space by the, the line splits. The flip side of that is if you face an Aaron Donald, who's already a, a one-man wrecking machine, and now you give him more space to work in, like it, it, it's the worst thing you can do. And you can't, it's not something you can change really in week to week. You can't go, okay, these are the line splits we've yeah, been working up. on the whole time. Everybody take a step in. 
Like you, that just doesn't work. So what you're doing is rolling into a game against Aaron Donald and consciously giving him more room to operate in, which is just like it's a recipe for a 14 pressure kind of game. Ben Stockwell confirms that 14 was the most in a single game this year. Crosby has the next three most. Look at this. We got, I love having a live track research team here. Just whenever we need him. Team. Ben. Ben. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's as good as a team. He does the work of an entire team. And he has since about 2007 here at PFF. <laughs> ben Stockwell, uh, 15th year in a row, unsung hero Yeah, for, uh, for PFF. Do you think Stafford can do it here, man? There's a... Uh, uh, who was tweeting out about his legacy and all that stuff? I mean, there's there's a lot on the line here for Stafford. If Stafford goes, if Stafford craps out one game into the postseason this year, I mean, man, like the, the the Stafford, the narratives can go anywhere, right? With Stafford, he's in this spot where first few games of the season, there was a whole bunch of people taking victory laps going, oh, all you people that thought Stafford to the Rams wasn't going to work feel pretty dumb now, don't you? Look at this. This is why the Rams traded for him. Look at him blowtorch the NFL. And then the collapse was like the opposite. Everyone's like, yeah, you know, the Stafford's just, the same guy he's always been. He can't win. Like, he won't win the playoffs, blah, 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 right? So the narratives right now kind of finally balanced on a knife edge. They can go anywhere. If Stafford has a nightmare, throws another pick six, they crap out of the postseason, you're like, Stafford's the problem. Stafford's the reason Detroit never got where they were supposed to go. They had Calvin Johnson. They had a good offensive line. They had some good players, and Stafford found a way to lose every time. Guy can't get it done when it matters. Or he can go from here. He can go in a, he can catch fire at the right time, avoid the mistakes for four games, and everything the Rams did is justified. That's the stakes here. From like Stafford's legacy becomes an actual joke to he can justify everything the Rams did and make them look like geniuses in four games. Chances are it lands right in the middle. Right. Where he gets like one done. He beats the Cardinals, loses in Lambeau. Yeah. Wins two games, you know, doesn't get it all the way. Yeah. That's the most likely outcome. But um, I feel like I'm always sitting in the middle on that, uh, uh, you know, fence sitting here in the Stafford conversation, right? Like but he's not somewhere in the middle. Like, but he's, he's not Dan Marino. But I also have, you know, our uh, Twitter nerd friends. Uh, you know, comparing like, oh, Stafford's EPA and this and that is it the same exact thing that Jared Goff brought to the table in 2017 and 18, which uh, which might be true. It finished, but that I was think- also 2017 and 18. Goff in 19 and 20, like the Rams upgraded a quarterback this year. Yeah, you can't compare Stafford to three years ago Goff and say, well, that's a lateral move because Goff has has gotten worse and it just it ran its course. Yeah, the point is Stafford ended this season I think exactly in the same place in terms of EPA per play as where Goff was in 2018. So whatever this is of Stafford is as good as it got with Goff, which makes sense, right? Goff that year wasn't graded that well. It was way better than he's ever graded than anywhere else, but it was like he was 8th or ninth or something. Like he was a borderline top 10 quarterback the year where he was great, quote unquote, in that Rams offense. So Stafford this year you know, there's been a lot of mistakes in there. Stafford's grading ninth. Makes perfect freaking sense, right? So that that is exactly what you're saying. That it, It's a lateral move from the peak that you ever got from Jared Goff, which makes it by definition an upgrade over everything else you got from Jared Goff, which if you reverse X number of months is probably exactly what we said, which is he'll be better, but how much? Like he's an upgrade, but is he that big an upgrade? And I think that is still absolutely 
a valid question. Right now, his PFF grade is 80.7 overall, which is basically the same it's been every other year in his Detroit Lions career. The production has been better because he's got a better offensive system to work with. And he has been doing a good job in terms of getting the ball where it needs to go and hitting some areas that Jared Goff can't. But his turnover-worthy play rate is higher than his Detroit Lions baseline. He is putting the ball at risk more. He's definitely making some plays, but that's the question now. Stafford is definitely an upgrade over Jared Goff, but how big an upgrade essentially determines the answer to was any of this worth it? Yeah, even if the results don't go their way, you did upgrade and you go into this game against the Cardinals and potentially you go into a game against the Packers and say, okay, at least we have, we have, I feel better about our chances and uh, we'll see, we'll see if that feeling is justified, but uh, Stafford and his story is a great one. The other story this week, Eric Weddle has come back out of retirement. He hasn't played since 2019. Uh, Was he one of our safeties of the decade? I assume he made our all decade team from the last decade. He was up there. Um, But a guy who had an incredible career with the chargers finished with the Rams could play deep safety, could play in the box, started his career playing over the slot. He did it all, but Weddle hasn't played football in a long time. Yes, he was. All decade safety is back after about two years of uh, not playing football. And not in this system either, by the way. He's never played in this system. (laughs) It's not like he's coming back to a system that he had familiarity with and it kind of makes sense. Right. I know my assignments and I can pluck this dude out of the ether and ask him to play a defense he's never played before because what the hell? This is on the back of Jordan Fuller starting safety, his injury, but the Rams are Look, it's just in line with everything else they've done, right? Let's go get Vaughn Miller for two draft picks and and no and not having him locked up after this year. Let's go get OBJ and just get him in and see if that makes our team better. Uh, let's bring out Eric Weddle. Let's bring in another veteran here. So um, I have no idea if this becomes an impact, if this is an impact on the game or anything. But like if if Eric Weddle's in the open field trying to trying to tackle Kyler Murray, I feel like the two years out of the game, like the game speed just isn't. As you get older, you know, things also like things look faster. And Kyler Murray might look a little fast in the open field for Weddle at this it point. Didn't appear I mean, I don't know. Like he wasn't the guy who retired and it, everyone was sort of waiting for him to come back. You know, it was a natural, okay, he's a great career had come to a close, Weddle's gone. What has he been doing in the last two years? Like has that dude been training for football or has he been like, you know, riding the Peloton for two years? I would imagine there's some significant difference between you know peloton fit for for it being depends. a regular dad and tackle kyla murray now here's here's a 10-yard channel make it happen it depends on your peloton level right well no i think i mean even if you're a superstar they have like football legs peloton level even regardless of like how good at the peloton you are you're still locked into a very linear you know mode of movement on the peloton like that's not helping you with quick twitch lateral sideways moves to track down the scampering kyla murray you know there's got to be like hip flexors and stuff involved in that that you're just not touching at the peloton yeah so i don't know how much of an impact eric weddle's gonna make in this game no i wouldn't have thought a particularly large one but it is an interesting move we have an update on uh new hopkins anything i mean he was supposed to be back before the postseason it says he could be ready to come off injured reserve if the Cardinals advance to the NFC Championship game. So, the NFC Championship yes. game. Wow. So I thought I thought the initial reports. Apparently, I was off. I thought the initial reports were playoffs. Now it's you know two weeks from now potentially if they're in the NFC Championship. 
Wow, that uh, is a big blow. It is a big blow. I mean, that's a that apparently they knew and I didn't. Um, so that puts again more pressure on you know the AJ Green. I believe Green the at outside. the time that was specifically reported as he will miss the rest of the regular season, which was probably deliberate wording, you know. And with hindsight, it's like everyone will automatically assume that means he's back yeah, for the wild card game, but actually he can be back at any time after yeah, that. So it was like truthful misinformation, again. right? You know, that's that's our world. Um, how about the other part of the Rams strategy too? Jalen Ramsey ends the season as the most valuable cornerback in the league. Aaron Donald, by far the most valuable defensive lineman. It's not even close because most, he, most valuable non-quarterback. Yes, the most valuable non-quarterback. And, and again, when we talk about value, it's a combination. When we use PFF WAR, it's a combination of how well you played, which facets you played well in, and how often you did it. Aaron Donald was on the field for over a thousand snaps as well. And, and here's what we've seen. When players play over 1,000 snaps in the season, it's tough to keep your pass rush win rate up. Mm-hmm. It's tough to play at a high level. That's why Donald is the most valuable defensive player. That's why he's a defensive player of the year. He kept a 94 overall grade despite playing 1,000 snaps, right? Yeah. So the strategy of the Rams having this top-heavy defense with Ramsey, with Donald, and then, yeah, they, and then Von Miller – and then they piece it together elsewhere with mid-round draft picks and whatever else they can find. And Leonard Floyd, I mean, they invested in certain places and not others. That whole strategy coming to a head here as well. Can this lead to this playoff push? So I love a lot of the storylines. Yeah, I mean, you know that the argument you were making yesterday with the Raiders and the Bears trade and Khalil Mack can't possibly be worth three other players. I was a little off. I guess it was only, it was two first rounders. Right, whatever. But the third player, th- sorry, real quick, but the third player I was talking about is also like the money you're paying Khalil Mack. Yeah. But, go ahead. but the point is like Donald has been like Donald has actually been worth three other players. Like he is the only non-quarterback in the NFL this year to have a PFF war figure above one. So right. generally quarterbacks are going to be worth multiple wins per year over a replacement player. Almost, I mean, no other position is, right? You will see it every now and again. A wide receiver will pop over one or a cornerback or whatever. Donald is the only player in the NFL this year with a war above one. And a lot of very good players have a war that's a fraction of one, right? So you can find easily three good players that Donald has been worth as much as. Um, And for perspective on that too, I know a lot of people are like, well, of course – Jonathan Taylor is worth more than one win and Derrick Henry is worth more than one win or Devontae Adams or whatever it is. Um, just to compare to baseball quickly, you like some high-end baseball players will have five, six, seven wins above replacement in a given year, but that's in a 162-game schedule. In football, there's 16 or 17 games now. So having a fraction of a win, it's actually similar from a, a proportion standpoint. And then you add in the fact that quarterback in football, there's no equivalent to quarterback in other sports. Right, any position in basketball or hockey or baseball can be the most valuable player, whereas football's unevenly, you know, it's disproportionate to to the quarterback. So a guy that adds four tenths of a win, which just sounds like like who can even wrap their head around that? That's a massive number. Four tenths of a win, three tenths of a win. Just so when you get Donald up at one, that's incredible. Just scrolling down to the sort of point three two range to get the you know three players. Just literally three consecutive players, Jalen Waddle, Cameron Jordan, and Devondre Campbell. Devondre Campbell's an all-pro at linebacker. Jalen Waddle just set the rookie record for receptions in a year, and Cameron Jordan's one of the most underrated defenders in the NFL. That trio combined is worth a fraction less than Aaron Donald this year. 
Incredible. That's how good Aaron Donald is. And we saw that the last time these two teams played, that dude single-handedly wrecked your offense. So that's what we're, we're, what we're looking at here. The, the Rams and their stars going up against the Cardinals. Uh, Kyler Murray, I think he's, he's got to take care of the ball, continue to make those special plays down the field. The intermediate pass range that they got better at this year, finding A.J. Green, Zach Ertz over the middle of the field. That's going to be the key here. I like the Rams, though. I think the Rams do it. I think Stafford has a good game. And the special throws that he threw out, uh, put out there last week, I don't want to over. Uh, I don't want to forget those. I thought he was really good last week, but he did throw the game-ending interception. But Stafford is really good up to that point, and uh, I think he has a good game here against Arizona. Yeah, I just I lost all confidence in Arizona. Their wobble completely shook any faith I had in them. Now, like four points though. I know. Keep I'm close. I'm kind of in the same place with both Arizona and Dallas. Like both teams shook any faith I had in them and then played each other and went the other way. And now I don't know what to make of either. I know, right? Um, Arizona but in particular, won a huge game against Dallas. Yeah. So you're like, well, does that – do you restore faith in what they can do? Or is it like, all right, that was a blip against another team that you've lost faith in? I don't know. Ah, I, I – yeah, I agree. I think the Rams are going to pull one out. I just don't have faith in Arizona to get it done. But they – I mean, we've seen they can. LA cover the four? Yeah. All right. To wrap it up, uh, you and I differ. I take Cincinnati. You got Vegas covering. I got Buffalo. You have New England covering. We agree on Philadelphia, keeping it close. I have San Francisco. You have Dallas. We both take Kansas City, and we both take the Rams here. That's it. Super Wild Card weekend. Six games this weekend, all the way through Monday Night Football. Should be great. So this is different, right? This is interesting. We are going to be back here Monday morning and only recapping five games. And one, one game won't have actually happened yet. Yeah. There's like, like there's only six games to go, and one of them won't be it's done by the time we have the next our podcast. Entire podcast. It really is. So next Wednesday, why didn't we'll the have NFL think of that? I don't know. They don't don't they realize we podcast first thing Monday morning, no. going head to head with Good Morning Football at seven a.m. No, they don't realize that. No. So we'll be back here Monday morning, seven a.m. Us Good Morning Football, head to head as always on a, on a Monday morning as always, and we'll be recapping five games. And we won't preview Monday Night Football because we already did it. Yes. Um, and then the Wednesday show next week, we can we can recap the Monday game, Cardinals and Rams. Sound good? Yeah. Don't forget, NFL Pod, 25% off any PFF subscription over at pff.com. And if you're on YouTube, we appreciate you. Don't forget to give us the thumbs up. It helps us uh, grow a little bit. But check out the award show last night. First time we've ever done this, Sam. PFF Awards. Um, some of them are NFL awards like MVP, Offensive Defensive Player of the Year, and all that stuff. But some specific ones offensive lineman of the year pass blocker run blocker passer all that fun stuff we recorded it live last night it's on youtube on your uh youtube channel here the pro football focus channel which you should also like subscribe to and do alerts and all that fun stuff so you don't miss anything hmm. uh, but check out the award show it was a lot of fun sam and i and austin and trevor uh breaking down all the awards for the regular season do that yeah do that yeah. you have anything else to add no okay great i'm out Everybody enjoy Super Wild Card Weekend, or at least the first five games. We'll see you Monday morning.